How do you know which exercise to use when you have multiple exercises that appear to accomplish the same thing? Good morning. Happy Monday. I have normal coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Another solid week uh, lies ahead. So this is going to be a fun one. Let's dig right into Monday's Q&A. This comes from Joseph. He says, hello, Bill. Hello, Joseph. Uh, I'm wondering what drives exercise selection, particularly when it appears to me that there are multiple means to a solution. How do you decide which exercise will, uh, you will program when tackling a goal based on table test selection? For instance, when creating a, a posterior concentric yielding strategy in the pelvis, Camperini deadlift, front foot elevated split squat, backward sled drag may all provide the desired outcome. How do you decide which exercise you'll program? So this is actually a really, really good question. And it, it's not as simple as it, as it seems sometimes. And I think that a lot of people are expecting some sort of uh, cookbookish kind of an answer. Um, people are really uncomfortable in the gray. And what we have to recognize is that, is that we have to have this overarching strategy of some sort and then we have to have the tactics that, that we apply. And the way we're gonna do that is we're gonna divide this into to three things that are gonna help us narrow the probabilities because we're always playing with probabilities as to what will be successful and what may not. And so the three things that we're gonna rely on are our model, our process, and then experience. And so from a model perspective, what we're actually talking about is some form of representation of what we perceive reality to be. And so when we, we're dealing with uh, complexities such as human movement, there's no way that we can understand it all or see it all at any one time. And so what the model does is it provides us a simplification um, and gives us a starting point of initial conditions to work from. And so when I recognized and involved the, the archetypes, right? so I organized the structure of the, of the archetypes the way I did is because it immediately helped me reduce the probabilities of what was possible because you start to recognize that that structure determines what someone's movement capabilities will be or should be. And I've immediately cut a, a, a quite a bit of the of the probability in my favor, and so um, this gives us our initial conditions to work from. Then we rely on our processes, and so what this would be is okay. So now I understand that I have this representative model, and now I can go into my assessment. I can determine what it is what it is that I'm actually actually seeing, and then what influences do I need? So let's just say that. Um, we have somebody that has this left posterior compressive strategy on, on, the, on the back of the pelvis and it's pushing that, that sacral base forward and maybe over to the right. And so now what I, what I know is that from my assessment process that I'm going to need that yielding strategy on this, this left side of, of the sacral base. And so there's any number of ways that I can get this. So you mentioned in your, in your questions a few exercises. So let's just say that, okay, I wanna use either the Camperini deadlift or, or the front foot elevated split squat. Well, both of those are gonna help me create that yielding strategy in the sacral base. So, so both of them appear to be on the table, but now we have to understand what, what the secondary consequences of each one of those are. And so if I'm using a Camperini deadlift or I'm, I'm using a front foot elevated a split squat, um, while I can certainly achieve that yielding position 
at the left sacral base. As I move out of those two exercises, I have to create a concentric overcoming strategy, which may actually reinforce the reasoning behind why this, this position existed in the first place. And if I can't manage that, that strategy, then all I'm doing is actually reinforcing um, what the limitation is. And so those are the secondary consequences that are associated with, with that, that type of an exercise. So let's just say that I, I can actually create an unloaded situation. So if I used a staggered stance or a side split squat with a cable chop, I'm actually moving into the same orientation of the pelvis where I'm capturing that yielding position, but now I'm doing it in a, in a much more uh, reduced load environment where I'm, where I'm using the cable pull down to actually reduce gravity in my favor. So now I can actually capture the change and actually reduce the amount of concentric strategy that I'm gonna have to use to get out of that. Um, now, let's just say that I have this additive um, in regards to, to my pelvic strategy that I've got this posterior lower compression. And so I immediately eliminate a few things um, which would be the, the Camperini dead left in the front foot elevated split squat um, because uh, that, that posterior lower compression is going to be interference. So I may have to actually resolve that first. So now I'm thinking about um, a strategy where I might use like a heels elevated toe touch, which is gonna move me way back to that earlier propulsive strategy to help me reduce some of that posterior lower concentric uh, activity. Um, in my world where I'm dealing with a lot of pain and, and people tell me that, oh, I, I, have, I have pain or discomfort um, in, in a standing activity that immediately tells me that, okay, I need to move you into a position where I have to reduce this gravity. So I might end up using something like a hook lying activity under these circumstances to reduce that posterior lower strategy, knowing full well that if I, if I stood them up, I have pain as interference, I have concentric muscle activity as, as interference. In the non-painful world, what you're gonna to wanna to try to do is strategize them into the highest level of performance where they can still be successful. So let's just say that I've worked somebody through multiple phases of, of interventions. I've, I've reacquired the ability to stand effectively. And now I wanna reintroduce a concentric strategy in that left posterior hip, but I need them to be able to control and manage it. Under those circumstances, now maybe I start to introduce this with, a, with the, the backward sled drag. So what the backward sled drag allows me to do, it allows me to grade the load on that concentric strategy. But as I move into the yielding strategy, the yielding strategy is entirely unloaded as I step backwards into that, that yielding strategy. So that might be a, a better way for me to start to reintroduce that. So as you can see, all of these activities can support the goal of acquiring the yielding strategy, but there is nuances associated with each one of those depending on what my findings are. And so that's why the representative model becomes so important. That's why following a process becomes so important. But ultimately, it's the investment in the, in the repetitions. And when I say repetitions, I'm talking about experience here for you to gain the knowledge, so you understand the nuances of your interventions, so you understand the, the subtleties of the presentations that, that your patients or clients bring to you, and then you can understand the secondary consequences. So let's mix this down to just some simple rules. I have to understand what my starting conditions are and the representation that my, my client is bringing to me. So that is my, my archetypes. Um, I have to recognize the strategy that they're presenting, and I also need to understand the strategy that I'm going to utilize to try to intervene to make the changes that are desired. And so that requires that I understand the nuances of the presentations, the nuances 
of the interventions that I'm going to be utilizing. So I need to understand where I would have secondary consequences that might actually be interference. Then it just comes down to my, my experimentation where I intervene, I observe what that outcome is, and then I intervene again. And so this is my repeated process until goals are achieved. So Joseph, I hope that's helpful for you. Um, if, if I'm unclear or if you have other questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com and ask more questions. Everybody have an outstanding Monday and I will see you tomorrow. So let's see if we can simplify the knee joint a little bit. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Man, that's really good. So it's Tuesday. Always, 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 always a busy day. So we're going to dig right into today's Q&A. It comes from Mike and it seems like it's a very simple question. But we're going to stack some stuff on top of this and make it really interesting. Um, Mike says, can you walk me through the relative motions of the femur and the tibia and how different positions would limit knee flexion and or extension? So he gives a little example of uh, an internally rotated femur on the, the externally rotated tibia. And so, so let's go ahead and talk through this and see if we can simplify this to a certain degree. And then we'll look at some of these these influences that get superimposed on top of this 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 knee joint and as to why these things might occur so we can strategize our way out of issues that may arise okay so the one thing that we want to recognize um, is that uh, all joints move on helical angles and so um, what we tend to look at we tend to look at these things in in these these imaginary planar views and it screws things up because we look at the knee as such, and we say, oh, it's got this sagittal motion, so we call that flexion extension. And the reality is, is that it's actually turning as it's moving through space. And so as we extend the knee, we want to make sure that we understand that the tibia is externally rotating, <coughs> excuse me, externally rotating relative to the femur. And then as we flex, it's going to internally rotate uh, relative to the femur. Okay, and so again, we always talk about two strategies, one plane. The one plane that we want to talk about is this transverse plane. So this is where where the the secret to the knee, I think, I think lies and and needs to be respected. Um, if we look at resources as far as like how much tibial rotation should we have, if you go to something like Newman's kinesiology book, he'll talk about like a 40 to 45 degree range with a, with a two to one bias of external rotation to internal rotation. So it was more external rotation of the tibia um, relative to the internal. And so if we, if we understand this concept of, of the rotation, then what we want to start to think about is like, okay, so what would be the limitation of, of knee extension? So if I have to have tibial external rotation to, to have normal knee extension, then anything that would limit my ability to externally rotate the tibia then becomes, becomes the restriction to, to, to extension. So it could be something as, as simple as uh, 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 effusion inside the knee. So there's a small amount of fluid accumulation in the knee that would be uh, anterior lateral um, or, or posterior uh, medial would then become a restriction to, to my ability to, to twist the, the tibia into ER. So now I have a lack of extension. So that always has to be a consideration, especially for you folks that, that want to blame the quads for being inhibited in things after a knee surgery. Um, I would be looking towards like some, some measure of effusion in the knee that is keeping that, that quadriceps eccentrically oriented and therefore it would test weak or it would, it would atrophy under those circumstances.
So on, in the opposing strategy then, when we talk about tibial IR, if we have an anterior medial or posterior lateral effusion, then we're gonna be lacking deflection because I won't be able to internally rotate the, the, the tibia effectively. So think about this for a second. So those of you that are complaining about a posterior lateral knee pain in your deep squat, and you're looking for a structure that, that might be the problem, and I can't rule out that structure is not a problem, but if the knee checks out okay, and you still have that posterior lateral knee pain, what you might be doing is you might be trying to squat with a, a, a tibia that is oriented better towards being an extended knee. So as you squat, you're actually sitting down and you've got a, a, an area of fluid accumulation on the posterior lateral side of the knee that you're trying to sit down on and you're just compressing that and then that results in the discomfort. So now let's consider some, some potential influences as far as what might be um, promoting these orientations in the knee that, that seem to be sticking it in, in, a, in a position. And the, the thing that I'm most fond of about talking about knees is I don't think that it's a very intelligent joint, um, to put it mildly. I think it's more responsive to what goes on around it. So now we have to start talking about pelvis orientation. We talk about, about foot orientation. So if the knee's a, a pretty dumb joint, and we're gonna pick on this tibiofemoral ER, so again, so I got I have a, a, a fixed beam where I'm gonna move it relatively as such, so it's externally rotated. And you say, well, why does this orientation predominate? And so there, so there should be a, like a picture right here so you can kind of see what I'm talking about in a real knee. And this can happen on either side. So I can have I can have this show up on the right knee or I can have it show up on the left knee because what this this orientation is, the tibiofemoral ER. Uh, orientation is is the system looking for internal rotation um, and, and so what we have is a femur that is internally rotated on top of the tibia because I have to apply a force to the ground I have to apply a, pro a propulsive force into the ground so I can stay upright against gravity so I can walk and do all the cool things that, that humans do and so when we think about embryology when we think about evolution external rotation came first so you were a swimmer before you were a walker you you came up on land and you had to figure out a way to put pressure into the ground and that that is through internal rotation so again that is our propulsion so if i have lost internal rotation anywhere in the system i will find a strategy that will allow me to do so and oftentimes what we'll see is this tibiofemoral er strategy we're gonna turn the, the femur inward into internal rotation to create our downward force. So when we see terms like knee valgus, or we see situations of, of hyperextension of the knee, what we're actually talking about is we're talking about somebody that's utilizing an internal rotation strategy because that's what the resultant is going to be. So we don't really have a hyperextension. What we have is, is a lot of internal rotation of the femur on top of the tibia. When we have the valgus, what we have is a change in the center of gravity to an anterior medial strategy, and then that twists the femur inward, turns the, the tibia outward, and we will put pressure down and forward into the ground. And so we have to do that through, through the knee. So the elephant in the room then becomes this pelvic orientation situation. And so an anterior orientation of the pelvis is, is me looking for an internal rotation strategy. That's why we lose external rotation of the hip when the pelvis anteriorly orients 
because I'm looking for more internal rotation and I have to sacrifice my ability to externally rotate. So this is why hip extension activities then become very, very important when we're talking about restoring normal knee excursion because I have to establish my external rotations first so I can delay propulsion and then recapture internal rotation. If we go all the way down to the foot, now we're talking about a situation where I might have a foot that's following that tibia into external rotation. Under those circumstances, I'll have an early propulsive foot. That means that I'm going to have an externally rotated foot. I've lost internal rotation at the ankle and foot. Internal rotation at the ankle and foot is represented by my ability to dorsiflex and pronate. And so if I lose that strategy, now I'm going to have to recapture that. So, so my goal then is to retrain my tibia to be able to move through the full excursion of middle propulsion. And that's where I recapture that dorsiflexion and nicely I capture internal rotation all the way up the chain into the hip assuming I have managed that pelvic orientation. So the bottom line here, Mike, is we have to stop looking at the knee as some sort of hinge, hinge joint. We have to respect the fact that it turns as it moves. And so measurements like heel to butt flexion become hugely important because it represents my ability to internally rotate that tibia fully. Capturing my, my five to 10 degrees of knee hyperextension by definition in the textbooks is my representation of my ability to recapture the external rotation of the tibia. So now we have a really, really simple way to look at this knee. If I don't have those excursions, I don't care about anything else about that knee until I can recapture those things because they represent the, the, the um, normal representation of what my knee should be capable of. So reestablish ER, reestablish IR on top of the ER, get your dorsiflexion back and you're going to save your knees a world of hurt. I hope that's helpful. Everybody have a fabulous Tuesday and I'll see you tomorrow. So what if somebody has an asymmetrical infrasternal angle? Does that mean that they're half wide and half narrow? Let's, let's talk about that. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. It's Wednesday. That means tomorrow, 6 a.m., coffee and coaches conference call. Barring any unforeseen circumstances, we will be there at 6 a.m. So uh, please join us. The, the link will be on my uh, professional Facebook page if you need that. Again, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for those of you playing the home game. Okay. Always tight on Wednesdays. Let's dig into the Q&A. Got a good one from Carl. Uh, Carl with a K. Um, and Carl says, how do you train somebody with an asymmetrical ISA? Would you, would the primary goal be to use um, resets to normalize, in quotes, normalize or improve symmetry first and then train in what ranges internal or external rotation bias that they have available? And so I think the first question that, that we have to ask is what is this representation of the asymmetrical ISA mean? And, and the first thing that we want to recognize that it is not half of a narrow person and half of a wide person. Um, that would be kind of an interesting scenario and we'd probably end up with a situation like that, that guy from uh, Lady in the Water that only trained one side of his body and so he had this big hulking like, like right arm and then the skinny left arm. Um, that would be that would be unrealistic. And so what we have to recognize is that the, the basic archetype, so the wide infrasternal angle archetype, the narrow infrasternal archetype, 
does not change when we have an asymmetrical um, infrasternal angle. What we're actually looking at is a management strategy um, as to how this person is controlling internal and external forces. So, so everything that we, we observe and everything we measure is a strategy within, within a context. And so under this circumstance, what we may actually have is a rate dependent um, influence as to how fast some of these forces are actually being applied to the system. And, and so um, all we're seeing is a magnification of the turning strategy um, that, that this person is using to manage those forces. We would see this naturally in just about any rotational athlete at some point in time during their performance where we would see a, a, a sharper turn, we're gonna see this representation of, of the asymmetrical uh, presentation through the thorax and through the pelvis. So again, this is not, not something unusual. And so again, we're probably looking at a change in yielding strategy. So if I magnify the overcoming strategy on one side, if I magnify the yielding strategy on the other side, I get a bigger turn. So essentially what I've done is I've moved myself further away from the, the, the dead center of middle propulsion. So I'm, I'm moving one side towards a later propulsive strategy. I'm moving the other side towards an earlier propulsive strategy. And so now what we have to say is, okay, um, what's the goal? Are we trying to increase the, the degree of adaptability? Am I trying to raise performance? And then what is the interference? And so this just becomes basic training. We have to identify, okay, what constraints are the limiting factors? How am I going to address those? And so when we talk about, well, do, do I need to work on symmetry first? I think the question that we first ask is, is, is symmetry even important under the circumstances? Or am I just trying to capture enough adaptability to alleviate pain? Am I trying to encourage adaptability to achieve a, a, a goal? Am I trying to raise some measure of performance? And so, like I said, it just becomes a, a, a training process. Here is presentation A, the goal is presentation B, and then I train to, to close the gap. So however it, it, it's necessary for me to, to expand the available strategies, I have to just decide, it's like, okay, do I need to just unbalance this program um, to, to achieve those goals to, to become more adaptable or, or, or to raise the performance? And so then we have to just decide, okay, how much of this do I need to do? Um, how often my frequency, my intensities to maintain this favorable change to, to achieve the desired outcome. So the big takeaway here is that the principles do not change. It's just a representation, like I said, of, of the greater turn. So we identify the presentation just like we normally would. We determine what our intention is, what is the goal, we identify the limiting factors. These become our key performance indicators that we're gonna track over time. As we, as we train, we determine the best approach. And the way we do this is we, we, this person becomes their own experiment, just like every other person that we run a training program for, is we identify what we think we see, we intervene, and then we monitor for the changes, and we track our KPIs to determine that we're on the right, the right um, process, and we're, and we're moving towards uh, the, the desired goal. So just adapt the program to the individual. So it's always going to come down to those principles. They don't change no matter what our presentation is. So, so Carl, I hope that uh, is helpful for you. Um, everybody have a terrific Wednesday. I'll see you guys tomorrow morning on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Have a great day. Oh, if you have any questions, ask Bill Hartman at gmail.com. 
Happy Thursday. This is the Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. I have NeuroCoffee in hand, and it is perfect. When we do, so for me, like the inverted exercises, hip elevated inversion exercises, huh? or the hanging exercises, my question is like, if I'm trying to do this posterior expansion, but I'm having my arms extended. Overhead? Overhead, like either inverted or like hanging. Yes. Um, I'm not sure like, because that would, that would a little bit close off that posterior meter time. And I wasn't sure like if, like how is there like a better way or how is that working? Okay. so. So what you what you have to understand is is where the greatest compression is as you move the arm through through any range of motion. So as you as you elevate, um, you're going to be moving through that space where the where the upper where the dorsal rostral. So dorsal rostral is that space between the the scapula. Mm -hmm. So as I move through the middle range, so so if you held your arm straight out in front of you at 90 degrees of, of traditional shoulder flexion, plus or minus 30. Through that range is where you're going to get some of the most, like the strongest compression in that upper back area, right? And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It just means that it's concentric muscle activity to, to be able to hold the scapula in that position. So there will be some more compression there, which, which but that's, that's a good thing because then it gives you an opportunity to create expansion elsewhere. So anything below that range that would typically be expanded has potential for expansion. When I, when I do move through that range, because I'm creating the compressive strategy on the back side, I am more likely to create expansion on the front side. So when we talk about, about the anterior thorax expansion, so we talk about pump handle and things like that for, from a breathing standpoint, um, moving through this range gives me that opportunity to, to emphasize that. The thing that you always want to recognize is that, is that it's, it's not this black and white kind of a thing. Mm. It's an, it's a bias. So I always say, I always use the word bias because of what I want you to understand is that both things are happening at the same time. So when I have a compressive strategy somewhere, I'll have an expansive strategy somewhere, but that doesn't mean that the area that's, that's being compressed does not expand at all. It does. Right? We have connected tissues that behave a certain way based on the way that, that tissues are loaded. So you hear me say things like concentric yielding. What that means is, is that the concentric muscle activity is such that it creates a position of the body. And then the yielding action is the response of the connective tissues to the loading strategy. So when I load tissues slowly, they yield, they give way. When I load them quickly, they get very, very stiff and then become resistant. So can you go more into um, yielding and overcoming strategies and when you use one versus the other? Yes. Oh, did you want me to expand on that? All right, I thought yeah, you, I thought you know if I'm just capable. Some examples and um, you know what you find on the table. I, I, I will, I will. Yeah. I, I gotta say something though. Nate, I, I appreciate your facial expressions. Thank you. It, it lets me know that I'm not a total idiot when I try to make a joke. Um, so do you understand what the difference is, what they are? Overcoming, 
trying to approximate some of the tissues and then okay giving way have you seen my silly putty example i don't think so okay hang on i guess it's like silly putty handy might have, had it. Might have left it at the office. Oh, guess what? So something to learn really quickly. There's a lot of toys out there for kids that are all physics-based, that they're great. They are, <laughs> I have my my purple room is like a like a, a kid's dream. I have slinkies and balls and Hoberman spear, spheres and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, so, you know what Silly Putty is, Dan? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Silly Putty. Okay. So, this is viscoelastic. So, you're 99% water and 1% stuff, and your 1% stuff is all viscoelastic tissue, except for like the mesenchymal stuff, but we don't talk about that. Um, so, when I pull on this slowly, it stretches, right? And then when I pull it really fast, it snaps clean. Okay. And so, what that means is that, is that something that's viscoelastic has different mechanics depending on the forces that are applied and how they are applied. So what I just demonstrated was a rate dependent response of the viscoelastic tissues. Okay. When you pull on a viscoelastic tissue, it, it gives way slowly, right? Which means it can absorb, it can absorb the force. Is that change permanent or relatively? I hope not. Okay. Okay. Um, they are adaptable. They are adaptable. They do change over time, but but the, again, the hope is that we maintain the, the normal resiliency of those tissues. So when I when I pull on it gradually and it can absorb the force, that would be a yielding action. It is the connective tissues that are that are yielding. In, in humans, it is not the muscles from a modeling standpoint. Don't confuse the okay. two, okay? When I yank on it really, really fast and it snaps, I, that's a, an increase in the rate of the force applied. So if the rate increases, it makes viscoelastic tissues behave stiffer. When they are stiffer, okay, they don't stretch as much. It's very, very difficult to deform them. And then they don't absorb and release energy like the yielding strategy does. Okay. So depending on um, the response that I need um, to produce whatever action that I'm doing, I need to have the ability to, to access the two different behaviors that I demonstrated. Okay, so if, if I have to, let me give you two examples and I'm gonna, I'm challenging you here, okay? So, so you're on the spot, so don't screw it up, okay? If- I don't perform I, well on the spot. If I, good, if I, if I jump, if what I want you to do is I want you to tell me which activity loads the system faster between I'm going to jump off a 36 inch box onto the floor or I'm going to uh, perform a 98% of my 1RM max effort squat. 
which one loads faster? I would say the first. The jump? Assuming you're not just like collapsing down. Okay, so we're not collapsing down. So, so you're saying that the tissues are loaded faster if I jump off the box, is that correct? Yeah, and you just like land okay. flat on the ground. Yeah, you, it's just a normal, just jump off the box and land, stick it perfectly. Like great technique, the whole thing, okay? My argument would be that it's actually the exact opposite because the minute I have that weight on my back, I am loaded. It's instantaneous. Are you saying when you unrack it and then? You're standing, you've got the weight on your back and you initiate the squat. Okay. The tissues are instantaneously loaded. The rate of loading is instantaneous. It's already there as you jump. So what I want you to do is I want you to look at the two activities in slow motion in your head. As you jump off the box and I make the initial contact, okay? I make the initial contact. The tissues are, are loading over a longer period of time. It's not a long period of time. It's just a longer period of time. The, the back squat example, the load is already there. It's instantaneous. The, the jump off the box, the tissues elongate over a longer period of time. That's actually a yielding action because I have to store the energy in those connective tissues. If I'm loaded from an instantaneous standpoint in the back squat, I need an overcoming action because if I would yield, you're accelerating towards the ground. If you want to understand how shoulder internal rotation gets limited by anterior compression, watch the rest of the video. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. I got a million and one things to do today. So we're gonna dive right into today's Q and A. It comes from Johnny. And Johnny has a question about shoulder internal rotation. And he, he asks, can you describe the mechanism at play when trying to decrease anterior compression either the pelvis or the thorax? For instance, some activities I've seen to increase shoulder internal rotation are aimed at increasing pump handle mechanics of the sternum by positioning the humerus. In using this position, is there an intramuscular pressure gradient that compresses the distal attachment muscle like pec major while allowing the proximal fibers to expand? Also, to reduce anterior compression, do you typically use asymmetrical activities? Johnny, this is a really good question, and, and you, you've really touched on a really cool topic, and, and you are um, very correct in, in your uh, perspective here, but let's, let's break this down a little bit deeper. So let's talk about the thorax. It's a little bit easier to see in the thorax because stuff moves a little bit more, uh, but the same thing is gonna be happening in the pelvis. So what we wanna do, Johnny, is we're gonna we're gonna cut the thorax right through there. So right about the, say the fifth rib at the bottom of the sternum, we're gonna chop it straight through there and then we're gonna look down upon it. So, so the diagram that I have posted up here is a cross section of the thorax through the scapula and so we can see where the humerus is. And what I wanna do is I wanna talk you through um, how we manipulate internal and external rotation by the position of the scapula. So if you look at this first diagram, what we have is a representation of what we would consider some sort of normal average kind of a thing where the scapula would rest 30 degrees off the imaginary frontal plane. And so that gives us a starting position. The starting position is kind of important to, to understand because as we start to move through space time, we're gonna see differences in concentric and eccentric orientation. So if I have 
an anterior compression, what I'm gonna end up with is I'm gonna get expansion on the posterior side. And what this is gonna do, it's gonna change the angle of the scapula relative to the imaginary frontal plane. So now if I have a 60 degree angle, I pick up concentric orientation on the back side of that shoulder. So if you wanna pick on a muscle, you could say infraspinatus picks up concentric orientation. And then I have a limitation of internal rotation. So that's how the anterior compression works. And so if I want to expand anteriorly, what I have to do is I have to reverse this process. So what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna pick a shoulder girdle position. I'm gonna pick an activity that produces concentric orientation of the muscles between the scapula. So I'm gonna compress that dorsal rostral area. I'm gonna pin the medial board of that scapula against the rib cage. And what that's gonna do, it's gonna drive the expansion forward. So now what I have is I have a change in that angle of the scapula. So it's now at a much flatter angle relative to the frontal, the imaginary frontal plane. And so what that does is it gives me eccentric orientation on the back side of that shoulder, and now I pick up the internal rotation. So that's basically the mechanism that we're talking about. And so that's how reaching activities tend to work, is they create this dorsal rostral compression, they get the anterior expansion, I get my pump handle back, and then bingo, bango, I get my internal rotation. Now, you brought up a really, really cool uh, representation of, of how some of this gradient stuff works within a muscle. And I, and I think you're actually correct. And so what we have to understand is that when a muscle is concentric or eccentrically oriented, we can also look at it as a, as a gradient uh, effect as we move dynamically. And so one of my favorite representations is when we look at a, a baseball pitcher. So if I was a right-handed pitcher and I'm reaching towards home plate with my glove side, I have to be able to internally rotate this shoulder. My, my, my left shoulder has to be able to internally rotate. But I'm, I'm rotating from distal to proximal. And so what happens if we pick on pec major for a second, as I internally rotate, I'm gonna start my internal rotation from distal to proximal, which means I'm gonna gain concentric muscle activity at the, the attachment of pec major at the shoulder. As I turn, I'm gonna have more concentric orientation distally than proximally, and what that's gonna allow me to do as I internally rotate, I have this nice little gradient effect where I have compressive strategy that moves from distal to proximal, which keeps my pump handle up long enough for me to get my internal rotation. If I was to concentrally orient that pec um, from an absolute standpoint without this gradient effect, I would get compressive strategy on the sternum, which would hold that sternum back. I get the posterior expansion, which is nice for external rotation, but I block my internal rotation. And so you're gonna see some form of compensatory strategy as I throw, where I'm gonna elevate the shoulder, or I'm gonna side bend my head as a substitution for that shoulder internal rotation. So if I break out the toothpaste tube, and we can kind of look at this, um, from, from the bottom up here is that what I get is I get this gradient where I, I have a compressive strategy distally and I get the expansion proximally. So it's a nice little representation as to how this muscle um, gradient uh, influence kind of works. Now, as far as addressing these pump handle mechanics, um, you can do it unilaterally and you can do it bilaterally. Um, from, the, from a narrow ISA standpoint, I do a lot of the bilateral stuff because we can immediately go to, to quadruped in, in many instances. So I might use like a bear position or eventually um, some form of crawling and then, and then to a bear crawl. When I'm talking about the wide ISA people, um, 
they tend to have the, the uh, quite a bit of anterior compression already. It's very difficult for them to, uh, to achieve the, the pump handle mechanics. So it's much easier to go after those people from a unilateral standpoint because I can create a much stronger compressive strategy on the backside and then um, create the yielding capabilities or eventually eccentric orientation on that anterior side. So Johnny, this is a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, hope that answers your question. If it doesn't, keep asking questions at askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. Everybody have a great Friday. Have an outstanding weekend, and I'll see you next week.